We need to have someone on the executive level, and that should be not sustainability, not environment, not all should be addressed from a holistic point of view, and that should be a chief care officer or chief caring officer, however you want to call it. And I felt that it was important um, that it had to be based from an emotional point of view, not not sustainability, not what does sustainability mean? Like, what are we trying to sustain anyway? Hello and welcome to Minto Dialogue, episode number 341. Today is Sunday the 15th of September, 2019, and this interview is with Nora Gerby. Nora is the founder of Who Cares Chronicles, a New York-based international caring initiative aiming to promote and provide insight into everything related to CSR. Who Cares Chronicles focuses on great leadership and best practices for the socially conscious business. Nora is also on the advisory board of several not-for-profit tech and fashion companies. In this discussion with Nora, we discuss how companies should be or could be creating high-value impacts, the potential for an impact index, the role of empathy and vulnerability in business, the production of content, and finding ways to intelligently promote corporate social responsibility. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Laura Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on this show. You and I share several things in common, one of them being sort of this Franco-North American thing, but you have a number of other things. Anyway, I came across your name uh, when you wrote an article that obviously just sparked me off, talking about empathy in machines and business, and, and obviously that's a big topic for me. So in your own words, Nora, tell us who you are. Um, my name is Nora Gerby, and I am um, the founder of Who Cares Chronicles, which aims to promote empathy in the corporate world and beyond. So in a few words, that that's me. All right, well, el- elaborating a little bit more, because um, obviously your name... Is, is something, but you've also uh, have a Canadian background, a French background. Give us a little bit more uh, texture around who you are. Sure. So, well, always very hard for me to, to say who I am or to describe who I am. But if I had to uh, describe it in a few words, I would say um, that I am um, definitely... Definitely, um, trying to promote empathy in the corporate world, which was the initial start of Who Cares. But uh, in terms of background, I am also, um, the older I get, I, I love to, to claim my roots as an African woman. Um, my ancestors, my parents were born in Africa, my great-parents were born in Africa. Um, and so I, I feel closer to um, the continent the older I get, which I, I did spend a lot of time as a child in the summer. I'm also Canadian, um, where I've lived most of my life. I'm also a New Yorker, where I've lived a very long time, and where Who Cares was started. So, as I said in, in previous interviews, it's always very difficult for me to, to describe who I am. I, I'd like to consider myself, uh, without sounding a little bit too cliche, but a global citizen. And I think it's very important to emphasize today on the, deficient, on the definition of being a global citizen today. It's... It, it, it's much more than um, a concept. It is something that has to be lived 
uh, through experiences. And I feel that I have yet a few more experiences to live, but I feel very close to many places in the world, such as Africa and Canada. Obviously, I'm Canadian, very proud Canadian. I'm also born in France, so I, I am also French. I've spent a lot of time working in Haiti, so I feel very close to the culture in Haiti, which is very close to the culture of my parents' uh, birth country. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's who I am. Great. And so, who cares, Chronicles, or at least who cares in New York? Tell us about how it came around. Who Cares is a, is a very interesting story. It was actually born, the, the idea, the, uh, the, the initial idea was born in Canada. And I was working at the time for the French government. Um, I was working with investors from Canada going into France. And I was working on a big investment project in New Caledonia. And um, my, my background has allowed me to uh, study um, very closely with First Nations in Canada. So I have, um, I had that expertise of understanding how First Nations work. And the issue that this company was facing was with First Nations in, uh, in a French territory. And so we worked together at finding uh, a way in between the business model, the business project, and also to weave it in the culture and, uh, and try to find, to solve the points of contention that were within the project. So that worked really well. Um, the company, the corporation was really happy and the local nations were, um, First Nations were really happy. And this is where the, the, the idea stemmed, was that I just didn't want to be, I always felt like a, a closeted philanthropist, although I, I've always, in, within since a child, through the exposure with my parents, were involved or volunteered in various causes. I wanted to kind of merge both and I just didn't feel like I could do that in my job, in my work. Um, although I heard a, a very clear, a very good podcast recently that said your job is not your work and your work is not your job. You have to know which one is and how you can weave them in. And so I felt that my work was my work, but my job was to, to kind of give back, um, bring attention to certain things, bring light uh, to certain things. And so that's what I tried to do with Who Cares. And when I moved to New York, I said... Well, I first I moved to New York in a very interesting context. I was my office was facing uh, Lehman Brothers offices. Hmm. I was right across from Lehman Brothers. I literally had a front row seat to the fall of the financial structure of the time. And then um, just very few weeks after that, after seeing everyone leave with their carton boxes and the news and all that ensued, I saw another bank put their sign in and take over and. Hmm went back to business as usual with the same methods and I was like well I, I no longer want to do this I really want to research this and how does the corporate world work and how does corporate finance works like how how can we how can we do better and I said well I'm I'm in a great position that I can have access to all these corporations and so I pitched it to my boss who himself is a very caring person and and I still thank him today for allowing me to to go into that research and he believed in the idea that they were uh, potential in this and so I started to study this, and, and I went and met with every single um, CSR person. At the time, it was, again, in context, it was 2007, 2008, and um, there, were, there were no chief of sustainability. There was, no, there was none of what we see today. And so the structure was really interesting, is that you had either a large corporation and a foundation, but they seldomly communicated together. I mean, sure. they, they just had few exchange. Or you had... Um, 
marketing director or communications director that did that CSR covered it or you had like you know a random person that was a CSR you know ex- with no credibility absolutely and very 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 seldomly heard i mean ideas or points were very seldomly heard so i was like this none of these uh, models work we need to have someone on the executive level and that should be not sustainability not environment not all should be addressed from a holistic point of view and that should be a chief care officer or chief caring officer however you want to call it and i felt that it was important um, that it had to be based from an emotional point of view not not sustainability not what does sustainability means like what are we trying to sustain anyway i really thought it had to be based from a caring perspective and and caring is empathy so it could have been a chief empathy officer but i wanted to steer away from you know i know there's chief happiness officers and such but i thought that caring was encompassing i mean the first thing that and i often mention it and and i think there's a good relations to a beautiful concept that i love in africa which is mama africa which is the earth and what gives from the earth and what is given from your community and the maternal aspects of giving and who cares the logo and all our you know colors scheme color scheme is pink light pink it is known to be the color of empathy and it's apparently referred to the uh, nipple skin which is flesh pink colored which is across the board in races is always sort of flesh pink colored regardless of race and and sex exactly and so, and the first relationship or the first um, introduction to caring that you have is through this. So pink, you know, subconsciously kind of resonates with the notions of caring. That's why I chose pink. And that's what, who cares, that's how who cares was born. And, and then I realized that we should have, uh, the second observation was that a lot of great practices were not available, barely available in annual reports. And why are they not? And we don't have issues with intellectual property, something that works within a corporation could work with another. If one corporation is... If one corporation... If one corporation is working well and saving a river, there's no reason why another corporation shouldn't apply that great practice. So, um, so that's where we started a website with a database and we would just gather in all fields great practices and some of them very often can be translated from say a great practice in pharmaceutical can be translated into agro tech or food or cosmetics sometimes Um, so available great practices uh, the nomination of chief care officers finding them out finding what they're doing why are they doing it how are they doing it and and kind of bringing light to that with a partner that is conscious magazines we write features of these people um, chief care officers, and then um, and then conferences and talks and, and a lot of articles that I write on these topics. And we also do work with schools and corporations where we do talks and workshops and to enhance empathy in these. That's why it's the corporate world and beyond. Because as we started, we started noticing that there were also great practices in communities, and that there's a lot of people that are chief care officers, but more like ethical leaders or citizens of change. That's what I, I call them in the communities, citizens of change, and then ethical leaders in startups or smaller businesses where they bring in forth um, just great practices, good ideas that are uh, dramatically sometimes, just a little idea are dramatically changing the face of a city or the face of a, of a company or, or, or an industry. And so I, I feel like the more we'll have visibility on these, the more we'll bring 
these to the forefront, the more they will be duplicated. The whole, the core of the business is, again, unrelated to intellectual property. When you do good, uh, you shouldn't boast about it, but you should definitely, if, if, if it's a thing that works, you definitely want to share with others so that um, if it fits their schedule, they have time to do it, why not duplicate it and know that you're going to have the same effect and impact. A good friend of mine, uh, Giles Gibbons, says doing good is good for business. When you're talking to a CEO, uh, presumably not a chief officer of empathy, but a chief executive officer, rather, um, how do you justify care? What, what are the arguments that work? Because let's say there's a cynical eye. You're, you're going to make me uh, spend money on stuff, got no ROI. How do you, what are the killer arguments to get care to work? Well, it's a very good question, very good point. Um, the number one thing is that we have now enough studies and enough data that demonstrate that, um, you know, a lot of companies are like, well, how do I get to be the you know, best companies to work for, well-being and all such things, and where you want your employees to feel a sense of purpose and uh, uh, sense of, something, of being a part of something greater. A lot of those values don't necessarily come from, well, they do, they stem from HR, but a lot of them come from the values that we try to promote with Who Cares. But second, and most importantly, and what is the thing that always resonates with these CEOs um, that are doubtful about what we try to promote, is that it is proven now that a company of the same size, of the same industry, um, that applies uh, um, that sort of approach and, and try to establish rules and practices that will enhance empathy within your business has a higher revenue um, by 10 to 15 percent higher. Same size, same industry. Um, so it is proven that it is not only good for your business, but it's good also for the well-being of your employees and and. It's not just marketing or greenwashing. or It's really an interesting value. It has to be a part of your DNA where you you get up in the morning. And, and I think a lot of people have a midlife crisis um, because they go through the motion of, of the bottom line. And the bottom line only gets you so far. And I'd like to make actually a little diversion on this podcast. But I was just yesterday at the memorial of um, a person that was very dear to me who passed eight years later and I was sitting there with my daughter at this memorial and I, I just realized and it was very clear to me this person was a highly prominent person in business and at the end of the day when you pass in years later what remains is um, the within his business was the sentiment of um, of community, the, 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 the values that you've shared. It's not so much, I mean, of course, the value you've created for your company definitely will go down in history if you made a company go from one to 100 billion, for sure. But it will also be, um, and that's one thing that I would like to establish, is the, a new kind of index where you could see the impactful index. Like you could have a stock market for value, like as we know it, money, pure money, and we've had it for so long, but isn't it time that we do have an index and a stock market for our impact and our environmental impact and positive impact? And I think today it's time. We are we are finally at this time. When I started, who cares? I used to have people laughing at me when I would introduce 
um, the concept and empathy and the ideas behind it. And I think that now people are finally ready to understand that purpose and empathic values and uh, doing good and not just doing it on the side or or um, having it as a as a token, making it a, a completely and fully uh, embedded within your strategy, I think is essential. And it is extremely rewarding for everyone involved. So, I, of course, I tend to agree with you, Nora, but I also believe that the stock market is not ready or mature enough to decorrelate or uncorrelate the stock performance with this other index that you're going going for. So the question then becomes, you know, how do you help the CEO to invest the time when he or she knows that the shareholder is going to be bearing down on them for the end of the month performance? Yeah, but I think the, the, the essential core of, of, of who cares is to extract uh, high value practices. So if we give you one or two values very small uh, to, I mean, very very easy to adapt, uh, very small tweaks. They're going to create such greater values. I mean, the, the investment uh, is really minor versus the, the reward. The reward is much greater than the investment required. And um, and I know it seems difficult, but one of the things, too, that I'd like to, to mention in terms of, of, of um, uh, convincing these CEOs, for the longest time, um, I could compare it to a ready meal. You just open the box and you have a ready meal and you just don't know where it came from. You just know the taste of it and the color of it and the shape of it. But the moment you take people on the journey of where where it came from, so if you take the CEO from the value that he's creating, so this is how you have X amount of dollars that you created this year for your company. I'm going to take you through the history the chronology of this creation. And the moment you do that, and it's sometimes very rare that you meet a CEO that actually knows every step of the generating of his revenue, it changes. It, 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 once you know, once you know, it's very, it's very rare that you have people that are like, oh, well, I don't really care how I made that. I, I, I'm going to do more of that and make more next year. If there are flaws in the generating of your value, I'm talking about, again, monetary values. You, an, an informed CEO, in most cases, and I truly believe in the good of people once they're informed, whether they are consumers or, or executives, they do tend to want to make the change. The challenge is, that's the next thing, is that once they know they want to make the change, how do I do that? You just have to give them the little tools that you have, and sometimes the littlest tools can make the biggest changes. So just to go back onto that notion, one of the things I've observed is that as soon as the CEO or the company that we're talking to struggles, let's say, to have a justifiable ethical line or is unprincipled, then this whole thing just falls apart. It won't, they won't, it'll fall on deaf ears. But so then, it, you know, if that's your target, then the challenge is, you know, exposing them to this ethical impropriety and giving them, you know, a chance, a lifeline to, to come straight. But I think there are still many, many people who, who, who don't see that as an interest and are more shark-like and are egotistically driven, typically men who are going to say, this is all I'm interested in. So I want to get back to one thing, though, which is um, empathy and care. Give me, give us, 
a definition or the differentiation between empathy and care? That's a great question. Um, I think empathy is the... I was just watching something earlier about a masterclass in acting. And uh, um, it was actually a famous actress, to name her Natalie Portman. She was mentioning that being an actor is one of the greatest form of empathy because you have to put yourself in the character. And I think that, and that's why the technology that we have today is going to be an incredible tool for us. Um, we, we Last year we did this short documentary film. It was a film um, in, a, in a refugee camp in the Becca Valley. And we wanted to do this through the eyes of this little girl who's seven years old. And we know today that most refugees are actually children under the age of 15. And I think that without having to be an actor, you can be a form of an actor today with AR and VR and you have the ability to project yourself into the situation of a refugee child or uh, you know, a, a sex worker in, you know, in somewhere in the world. You can be um, you know, an abused worker in a factory somewhere. In the world. Like, there are a lot of opportunities for us to put ourselves beyond what we can see on television and also I think the difference between empathy and care is the bridge between the moment you know is empathy, the moment you act is caring. But in order to get to the acting part, you need to make sure that the information that you give when you're on the empathy side does not create um, fatigue because you can have, if you're highly empathic, you can be trained and it happens with a lot of uh, humanitarian workers who... um, who have sorts of all sorts of, of PTSD afterwards. You have to do it, and I think we have today the means, without going into overexposure of violence and suffering, the ability to tweak and to tip and to lead in a very elegant way. And this is what we wanted to do with the documentary. I didn't want to do, and I had people actually being upset, people that worked, humanitarian workers on refugee camps, are like, well, this is too beautiful a piece. It's almost dreamy and pretty and... And I, I didn't want to um, do something sensational or, or portray so much of the violence and the suffering that this girl was going through and other children there. I wanted to do a story that was just a, an interview. You have one 10, 10, 15 minutes with her. You never get to have 10, 15, 10, 15 minutes with a refugee camp child. Here, I'm going to give you this opportunity, and we were just asking her questions. Um, and I think we can do it today through... Um, elegantly, um, beautifully, aesthetically, there there is a way to show, and I may be getting beaten up for what I'm about to say, but there's a there's a way to create empathy and to enhance your empathy by the production of content that doesn't have to be violent for people that they want to turn away and never want to know about this again and never want to open the box again because it's too painful. And a lot of the times it's what happens. People don't want to know about it because it is too painful for them to, to digest. We want to make them digest something that's beautiful so that something beautiful can be done to solve it. So first of all, how can someone see the film? So the film is not yet available for white use. We've had targeted audiences see it. We have a second version coming out. Uh, the director who co-directed with me, um, was adamant about having... So just to give you a bit of context, um, I've used the technique that I've used in Haiti with the work I've done in Haiti, which is therapeutic art. And uh, so there's a lot of drawing and a lot of use of color 
uh, for the documentary, which was how we wanted to sort of exercise uh, the pain and, and of the story, but also to give a bit of, um, of a way for the child to express herself without having um, to go deep into painful memories. So she wanted to absolutely use the use of color uh, for a different gradation of the, of the view of, of the film. So she's making a second version, and this film will be distributed. We have found a distributor now um, at the Cannes Film Festival, and we're going to have it distributed to wider audiences, and hopefully it'll reach a lot of people. Um, it's still very much, sadly, uh, uh, accurate and current. Um, so it, it will be soon. All right, so as soon as I have word of where it is, I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who listens to this later on. Um, you mentioned something that really struck a chord, which is this notion of, of pain that could s- seem, in, in the world I understood from you, stop empathy. And I wonder how, when we go to businesses, and this is obviously what I do, I'm trying to help businesses understand the benefit of empathy but there are so many things that get in the way and I've tended to classify them as being technical things like stress like not enough time to listen you know go out and and do some market street listening to what the customer's thinking and I don't have time for that boy I'm really struggling to get the, the turnover in but I'm wondering what if there's also another sort of more psychological, deeper psychological issue which impedes certain profiles from being empathic, and it and it it, it feeds a fear deep down or something. Have you have you got any experience in that? Ah, um, I I honestly believe that our next frontier is not going to be what we think. I think that while we're focusing on certain things like AI and, and that's why I talk about it in my article that I wrote for Conscious Magazine or VR, or all these new technologies which are amazing by the way, I'm not saying that they're not I, I'm very excited about what's to come and, and accepting it um, and incorporating it into what our lives will be but I am also a firm believer that empathy has been and for many years, for many centuries one of our most underutilized tool and most underutilized um, uh, aspect of our humanity. I think that for many, many years, and I don't know if this answers the question, but I'm going to try to answer it this way. I think for many years, um, I have a friend of mine that uses this notion, which I really like because it's kind of in tune with technology. She says you have two kinds of people. You have the old grade and you have the new grade. So you have the sharks from Wall Street. You have the doggy dog mentality. You have the kill or be killed. Yeah, that was one. And that worked for a long time. That worked to build and create. And, and um, society grew from those notions. I don't think we need those anymore. We don't. It's like being the bully kid in in junior high school and then you graduate and you're in high school and you're older and you're wiser and you're like I don't need to bully anymore anymore I want to be I want to be more gentle I want to be more um, understanding I want to use more less anger less aggression more empathy more kindness more softness I don't think being soft is a being soft and I know that Brene Brown has written a lot about this vulnerability and vulnerability and empathy are two different things. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not comparing both. But I'm saying that the ability to be... If you look at a 
a rock and it's hard and it's very very little for, for it to get through and a very little malleability if you look at something like you know plato <laughs> there is much more that you can do from shaping it and and there's uh, much more uh, exploration possible in terms of how you want to shape yourself in your future i don't know if that's an analogy that works but mm. i think we should be less rock rock doesn't work for us anymore and more plato <laughs> well it it, it certainly speaks to the plasticity of the brain and the ability for us to adapt All right so outside of seeing your film in private screenings what are the ways that a company can become more empathic how do you inject empathy into a business that selling staples or you know yep. basic stuff and make it uh, last we have a series of exercises that have been created over the years that i've created and created and one of the first one um that i i love to use because it works with kids in schools and it works with executives that are in their 50s um it's the called the well um exercise um it's a uh, it's actually being turned into a book as we speak it's almost finished right. um and it's the book's going to be called the source and it's from a story that happened when i was a child in in uh, africa north africa my grandfather in the 80s the infrastructure in the in north africa were not what they are today and um uh, very often water would run out uh, for an hour or two but one time the water ran out for a couple weeks and then uh, he had a well from in his Exactly. It was, it was really hard. So we had access to water bottles delivery and, and, and we had this well, his well in, in his, the property. And uh, he decided after two weeks to open the gates of the property and have the villagers come in and, and uh, take a bit of water. And for me, there was a pivotal moment in, in a sense that I saw the opportunity for metaphor metaphorical exercise that has been working as i said really well across the board from 7 to 77 as the saint france de 7 à 77 ans and it it worked really well because a within the exercise it's an it enhances your your self esteem for children um and it really boosts uh talent and uh creativity um and then for executives it kind of extracts aspects of themselves that they're not feeling comfortable to express so it's all forms of like abilities and talents that they have that they just don't feel that they could use. Can you give us an example of something that they're not comfortable expressing. Um the creative process is very interesting. So you can have an executive that's that's a you know great with numbers and his job is all day to work with numbers but yet they have a, a whole creative side of them that's been suppressed. So the exercise itself is a at the end we ask them to create essentially their own well draw it we asked him to draw which you never get <laughs> executives to draw ever yeah i don't know how to draw they'll say exactly but they love the exercise because it's something that we're asking them to do uh, and you're not in a shrink's office we're just we're not you know looking at butterflies and <laughs> asking them what shape it is we're just asking them to draw well and to put inside things they don't usually use at work but they that work really well for themselves outside of their office mm. so some of them are incredible writers some of them are incredible speakers some of them are incredible advocates for certain causes that they never speak of because they're not comfortable speaking about them or because there's something that's 
they feel that's private, but yet it is shared amongst other executives within the same room. They never talk about it, and they are in awe or in shock to find out that someone else is dealing with diabetes or um, MS or asthma or I'm just talking about all kinds of things that you could be dealing with or someone in their family that is dealing with cancer and it puts pressure on them. And and again, it's not necessarily an HR story. It's a it, it, empathy, essentially, is the ability, without getting woo-woo on, on, on everyone here in this podcast, is the ability to understand that we all are living the same experience from a different set of glasses. And the moment you realize that, um, we have different glasses, but we're living the same experience. Everybody experiences grief and loss and heartache and heartbreak and job loss or job you know, questioning, am I doing the right thing? Am I, is this my purpose? Why am I not fulfilled? Am I... Am I living my true life? And um, these are topics that are not addressed um, very often. Uh, and we don't necessarily need to um, go into, again, without going too deep into psychology, we don't need to be in a shrink's office to address certain things, particularly when we know that um, enhancing your empathy within that context, of course, staying within business, being a great speaker or a great writer may benefit your company in ways that you just never thought of and may give you an opportunity to be closer to your purpose, therefore a greater asset for your company. And the CEO would love to know that. It's like, I didn't know you spoke Chinese or I didn't know you lived, you know, one year in Vietnam after, after graduation and you did this project. Sometimes there's a lot of, you know, shadow sides of someone's self that can be a greater asset, and it's just not not enough explored. So the the ability to explore it through these exercises has proved to be very valuable for the companies that have accessed those exercises. And they're again, they're very they're very simple in a sense that we're not we're allowing people to have a platform that is not a platform that they explore every day. So, so create an environment where people feel safe. comfortable enough, safe enough to talk about other elements beyond the rational that maybe expose some creativity, uh, maybe talks about other experiences, more emotional. And, and I like to talk about uh, actually bringing out the side hustle because somehow I feel so many people are, are stuck in a job where they, they don't feel the passion. They're doing what they have to do, but then they're very keen to go home and they can work until 3 in the morning on collecting you know, different types of nails, whatever. And, and if we could allow those side hustles to bridge back into work, maybe it'd be good to know that you speak Chinese or something. So, Nora, um, time is what it is. I could go on for a lot longer, but tell us how someone can connect with you or track you down, listen to what you're up to, read what you write. There's a few um, podcasts available um I do a lot of conferences. I speak at a few conferences. Um, so there's talks coming up. Uh, we have a few coming up in the second part of the year, in the fall, in the winter. So they can come to those. Um, and we can read some of the things that are being written around the context within Conscious Magazine and other articles. Uh, they can go to our website and see some of the great practices that we... And your website's name is? It's whocareschronicles.com. Instagram is a great... Um, is a great way. I, I think I would 
lead more people to go to Instagram, which is Who Cares Chronicles as well. Uh, so you can just Who Cares Chronicles is the name of the of the page, and um, yeah, and um, they they will get most from Instagram, I think, and the the website. All right, well, great. Uh, I think it's been great have you on the show, Nora, to hear about what you're up to and help promote a topic that, of course, I feel dear to. Thanks for being on the show. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Honor. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.